Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation Podcast Series. Today's interview is one of many that will make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I'm honored to have as today's guest, Dr. Nathan Zassler, who is CEO and Medical Director of the Concussion Care Center of Virginia, as well as Tree of Life Services, Inc., a living assistance and transitional neural rehabilitation program for persons with acquired brain injury in Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Zassler, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. Dr. Zassler is board certified in physical medicine and rehabilitation, fellowship trained in brain injury, and subspecialty certified in brain injury medicine. He has lectured and written extensively on neurorehabilitation issues related to acquired brain injury. He has won numerous awards for his work in traumatic brain injury research, clinical care, and advocacy, along with serving as chief editor of the international scientific publications Brain Injury and Neurorehabilitation. He also has edited seven books and currently serves as a reviewer for over 10 peer-reviewed scientific journals. Dr. Zassler is an affiliate professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, and associate professor adjunct in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the University of Virginia. Dr. Zaslow also is a fellow of the International Academy of Independent Medical Evaluators, as well as the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine, and a diplomate of the Academy of Integrative Pain Management. Dr. Zaslow, please tell our listeners about your clinical background and experience in assessing and treating patients with acquired brain injury. I would say that since my residency days, which are now quite a while ago, I have pretty much had an eye to an interest in acquired brain injury, most of that germane to traumatic brain injury. I was chief resident of the brain injury rehab unit in my last year of residency, went on to do a fellowship, and have pretty much focused on brain injury assessment, treatment since that point in time. And initially, what inspired your interest in treating patients with post-traumatic headache? It's an interesting question, and I probably have a multi-pronged answer. One, I felt that headache was being inadequately assessed and treated. Two, I felt that there were significant issues with and concerns with the research as well as the types of examinations that people were doing and the assumptions people were making about the causes of post-traumatic headache, which we can get into further in the context of our discussion. And lastly, because it was a much more complex problem than I think for many years people gave it its credit for, 
and complexity always has intrigued me. And what's been your experience with the time of onset of headaches following concussions and other more severe traumatic brain injuries? Well, there's actually a decent literature here. Part of the problem is that some of the international established headache classification systems are disparate from the clinical experience and research looking at time of onset of headache. Generally, depending upon the cause, most headaches probably manifest within the first couple of weeks, and those that don't manifest within that period of time within the first couple of months. Now, there are exceptions to that rule where people for more specific, unusual situations can develop headaches that can be causally related to their initial injury well after that two-month time frame. Now, I've already used the term post-traumatic headache in an earlier question. What's your opinion about that phrase as a diagnostic entity? Well, I don't have a problem with saying post-traumatic headache. I think my problem is just saying post-traumatic headache because the patient and the doctor who refers the patient or the case manager already knows that the person was in a trauma and now is complaining of headache. So you haven't told anybody anything that is not already known about the condition and that as a diagnosis is inadequate to say anything about how the person should be treated or what the prognosis is for that particular pain condition. So I think stating a diagnosis of post-traumatic headache secondary to and then stipulating what are the contributing factors to the headache, whether it's cervicogenic, meaning coming from the neck, tension headache, occipital neuralgia, a local scalp nerve problem, or migraine, or I could go on, enumerating those diagnoses after stating the person has post-traumatic headache is essential. And what factors may influence the severity, frequency, or aggravation of post-traumatic headaches? I think a lot of that has to do with what the underlying pain generator is. So different types of headaches typically present somewhat differently in terms of how frequently they're experienced, what tends to aggravate them, like myofascial referred pain tends, for example, to be aggravated by cold weather or drops in barometric pressure, just as post-fracture pain tends to be aggravated by those same factors. Migraine could be aggravated by time of the month for women, could be changed in terms of its presentation during pregnancy because of hormonal issues and changes that occur during pregnancy. Psychological factors like depression, anxiety can impact and alter the pain presentation, um, typically making it worse, not better. So there are multiple things that can affect that, including how you take your medicines. So if you're taking your medicines inappropriately, then that could worsen your headache on multiple levels. One, you're not taking it as you should or enough, or two, if you're taking it too much, you could develop in certain circumstances a medication overuse headache syndrome. 
You mentioned changes in weather patterns, for example. So is that taken into account when you're advising patients that if the temperature either goes up too much or down in the other direction, here are some of the things you should be prepared to do to avoid having a headache? Most patients will tell you if you're doing a comprehensive headache assessment that their headaches get worse under certain environmental conditions. So they generally already know, but I think it's helpful to educate patients about what they're experiencing is expected slash normal relative to what you feel the headache pain generator is, because that decreases anxiety about the condition and the impairment associated with the same. To what degree do pre-existing conditions, such as migraine and other conditions, influence the likelihood that someone will suffer from post-traumatic kinds of headaches? Well, there's actually probably the best literature for migraine showing that there's likely a correlation between pre-existing migraine history or what are called genetic loading variables, meaning if you have a family history of migraine, then the likelihood is that you are going to be at greater risk for developing a migranous type headache or at least migranous elements to your headache following trauma, what sometimes is referred to as trauma-triggered migraine. To the possible extent that sleep bruxism may contribute headache-related disability after a brain injury, do you recommend that screening should occur to determine if any teeth grinding is occurring in that patient's life? Well, TMJ problems and bruxisms, which aren't necessarily related, although they can be, are probably a lot more common in the general population than most clinicians might be otherwise aware of. And I think it's always important to look at how pre-existing issues, as well as post-injury de novo conditions, which both of those conditions, TMJ disorder as well as bruxing, can occur post-accident. But it's important to look at how those mesh with the overall headache disorder condition because certainly bruxing, whether nocturnal or, you know, throughout the day, as well as TMJ dysfunction, can present with headache in and of themselves and or make headache worse when there are other headache conditions present. You already mentioned the weather, so everyone's aware of what's going on around them environmentally. But on something like gnashing of the teeth while sleeping, my guess is unless a dentist points that out to them, a sleeping person may not know that that type of activity is occurring inside the mouth. Does that make sense? Unless they actually hear themselves grinding and are aware of it, or they have a bed partner who tells them you're grinding your teeth when you're sleeping, they may not be aware of it. And you're correct that a decent oral exam to look for excessive tooth wear in those individuals would be the only way to establish that. And is that part of the routine when you deal with patients to try to determine whether or not that condition might exist? I'm going to tell you it's routine and part of one of the problems currently is that there's no standardization for the headache exam following trauma, which it would be nice if 
there was research to support a standardized approach. What I do, and I can speak to that, is that if I find evidence of soft tissue involvement of the chewing muscles, what are referred to as masticatory muscles, then I will generally inquire further about TMJ, bruxing history, and do an intraoral exam. And there are other sleep disorders that may occur post-concussion or traumatic brain injury that clinicians should think about in the context of post-traumatic headache differential diagnosis. I think the fair answer is yes, and probably the one that's most salient is what's termed obstructive sleep apnea. One of the conditions that we see probably more so than is actually acknowledged in these patients, particularly after more significant brain injury with associated weight gain due to relative immobility, is onset of obstructive soft tissue in the upper airway, which creates breathing problems that impact how you're oxygenating your blood. And that can cause, among other things, headaches simply related to that obstructive apnea problem. You've answered this to some extent. Are there any other factors that would be important for clinicians to consider in the context of differential diagnosis of post-traumatic headache? That may be the most complex question you've asked so far. The way I would answer it is the following. In the context of looking at differential diagnosis, you have to have good information going in to get good information going out. How do you get good information? You get that by taking a good headache history, which to a great extent guides the physical examination of that particular patient and their particular headache pain generators, or at least potential pain generators. When I educate and lecture about this topic, I like to make it real simple, the old KISS principle, and tell people to think about the three C's when thinking about differential diagnosis. Those three C's include the cerebrum or brain, the cranium or head, and that includes structures around or in the head, including the scalp, the meninges, the structures intraorally, intranasally, intraorbitally, et cetera. And then the third C is cervical or referring to neck. So between those three structures, you have pretty much covered the possibilities for what might be the pain generator. And you often have multiple contributors to the pain that need to be sorted out. So it's not uncommon, for example, in people with tension headache to have abnormal cervical exam findings, just as it's not uncommon in people with migraine to have abnormal upper cervical exam findings, which also need to be treated in order to optimally modulate the headache condition. In the context of differential diagnosis, what do you see as the biggest mistake that clinicians might make in treating post-traumatic headache? Well, I could probably give you multiple answers. And again, understanding this is just one person's opinion, I would say not going far enough 
in terms of exploring other potential contributors, like, as an example, if it's obviously tension headache, just stopping there and saying, okay, we're going to treat you for tension headache. Or if they just find abnormal neck findings, again, it's perspective, and you got to take the blinders off and make sure you've looked at everything. That would be my answer on that one. And trying to look at the, the journey that a patient takes. A head injury is sustained. They may end up in emergency room. Uh, they may end up seeing a primary care physician, family physician, or someone along those lines. So how much do these individuals really play a role until it reaches the level of someone like yourself who has the expertise and the knowledge of how to deal with these situations? Well, there aren't that many people with subspecialty expertise in brain injury medicine. So with that being said, I think there's been more education because of media-generated stuff as well as just generally increased awareness of brain injury in the lay community as well as in the professional healthcare community where there may be some greater degrees of understanding, but I think there's still a lot of gaps in that understanding, both in terms of diagnosis and treatment, as well as other areas like classification of this type of headache disorder. And on the topic of understanding, how important is it to understand post-injury psycho-emotional issues in the context of headache assessment? Well, I think psychological issues, as previously referenced, are important and can be contributory as an aggravating factor or as an etiology in and of itself. So you can see headache problems reported in people who are depressed, tension headache disorders and people with anxiety disorders. PTSD has a fairly significant incidence of headache associated with that post-traumatic disorder. So I think significant, often not addressed adequately in the context of formal assessment, but highly relevant in the differential diagnosis. Dr. Zassel, I'm going to conclude part one of this interview by thanking you for sharing your insights with our listeners about post-traumatic headache. A second part of this interview will be made available on a separate occasion, and our listeners are invited to access it also. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.